Today's episode of Outlines contains references to rape and descriptions of a murder which some may find distressing, so listener discretion is advised. Hello, and let me tell you about Twisted Britain, a podcast on true crime in Britain with a sprinkling of the weird and the macabre. Your hosts are me, Bob Dale. And me, Nadine Royal. We're a couple of friends we met in the pub, and we developed a friendship based on our mutual love of booze, podcasts, and pub quizzes. We met in the Settlement in Stirling, and that's where we record. Each week, we both tell a story of something twisted. One long one, and one short one. And we decide who goes first. Based on the flip of a coin. So if that sounds like something that would tickle your fancy, you can always find us wherever you normally find your podcasts. Just search for Twisted Britain. Thanks. Bye. Welcome to the second of my collaborative episodes with the True Crime Enthusiast. If you haven't heard the other one, it was the first Hertfordshire case I covered, entitled Josephine Backshall's Advertisement of Death. The format of this case will be very similar to the last. Mine is an unofficial part one, where I will outline and give context to the crime. Then on Paul's episode, he will take you through developments and suspects. We've hit some snags along the way, The crime we're covering has been reported quite thoroughly, but during our research we've discovered that there are lots of gaps in the narrative. On more than one occasion, police have given statements with seemingly little evidence to back them up. This is either because it doesn't exist, or because they don't want to share their findings with the public. Regardless, we've spent a fair while piecing together what we can, and now we'll leave it up to you to listen to the episodes and draw your own conclusions. We start on the 16th of January, 1967. There were high southerly winds that day, and under a grey sky, farm worker Fred Berge was harrowing a field near the Suffolk village of Tattingston. It was on his first pass when he spied something strange under the hedgerow. To begin with, he assumed it was rubbish, a couple of old suitcases discarded next to the station road, and so he continued his work, until... As he came round again, something made him stop to investigate. Later, Fred, looking surprisingly stylish in tweeds, dark-rimmed glasses and a flat cap, told the Ipswich star, I opened one of the suitcases, and that was enough for me. He quickly telephoned for the police, who descended onto the scene securing the site and setting up a mobile caravan. They blocked off the station road which leads to the village of Bentley, and began to collect what evidence they could. The day passed through to night, and on to the next morning, and still the suitcases remained under the hedgerow, while forensic experts removed samples of the undergrowth and took plaster casts from near the entrance to the field. There is a photograph taken that night. It shows six men in suits gathered around a seventh who is crouching down. One of them is operating what appears to be a large light, and they are all staring intently at the cases, which are hidden from view behind a low hedge, but identifiable from square markers which read two and three. Later, East Suffolk Police Chief Peter Matthews would describe the scene as pretty well as ghastly as you would wish to see. In the first suitcase that Fred Berge had opened that day, he discovered a neatly folded sports jacket, and in the same case a human torso. On opening the second, it revealed limbs and the head of a young man. His naked body had been severed into eight neat pieces and packed into the cases before being left just inside the field's boundary. I'm Jess Carter, and this 
is the Outlines podcast. After police had finished their initial investigations, the body was taken to Ipswich, where pathologist Alfred Lintott conducted the post-mortem. Over the course of seven hours, he determined that death had taken place about two days before the discovery of the body, and that the youth was in his late teens or early twenties. The cause of death was manual strangulation, and the young man had laceration wounds to the back of his head, probably caused with a knife which were determined to have been made while he was still alive. As well as this, his body showed signs of either a sexual assault or that he had engaged in anal intercourse in the time leading up to his death. I'm sorry I can't be more specific here, but even with all the research Paul and I have conducted, it's still unclear whether or not the man had willingly taken part in sexual acts. Some reports say one thing and others another, When the pathologist examined the dismembered parts, he discovered something surprising. With the exception of one limb, they were cut so neatly that the bone had been completely avoided. This looked like the work of someone with anatomical knowledge and perhaps surgical experience. While police were beginning their hunt for the murderer, they first needed to identify the young man, something which it soon became apparent was no easy task. In an age before internet databases, identifying a person was a difficult job. Their first port of call was to look into any men in East Suffolk who had been reported missing. When that drew a blank, they extended their search nationwide, beginning with an 18-year-old medical student from Bristol called Roslyn Evans. he disappeared from his University Hall of Residence in November 1965. Detectives had the grisly job of comparing a photograph of Ross to the head in the suitcase, but it wasn't a match, and unfortunately, Rosslyn remains missing to this day. Detective Superintendent Harry Tappin of Scotland Yard held a press conference where he issued details of the boy's appearance. He bore extensive moles over the right side of his face and neck, and a few on the left. There was a faded quarter-inch scar above his right eyebrow, with another scar about three-quarters of an inch long on the knuckle joint of his right forefinger. He was around five foot three inches tall, of slim build with dark curly hair and grey or grey-green eyes. To begin with, police thought that he might have been Latin American or continental, and so they began to investigate the docks at the nearby port of Harwich and question sailors in the area. This idea was further backed up by the markings on one of the two suitcases in which the body had been found. This was by far the more distinctive of the two, and it was described as a type often carried by seamen. It measured 24 inches by 14 inches by 7.5 inches, and was made of cardboard covered with dark green canvas. It had steel corners reinforced with studs and a metal brown painted handle from which most of the paint had worn off. 
It was fitted with two chainy locks and had black leather lid support straps. The cases were checked for fingerprints, but only the handles, locks and corner pieces would have contained any marks, and to my knowledge, none were found. The first suitcase was lined with red and white square paper and bore a trademark of a golden lion, mounted above the word monarch. On the top edge of the right handle were the initials PVA, two inches high and roughly painted in black paint or marking ink. The letters looked like they might have been made by either a seaman or perhaps a military issue. In Paul's episode, he'll talk more about the PVA marking and what, if anything, it might have meant. You'll discover that there are a few different clues, which on the surface look like they might make promising leads, but they never seem to have come to anything. Paul and I have speculated that they may have been red herrings all along. PVA is one of those. It certainly didn't help police in their struggle to identify the victim, and neither did the article of clothing found in the suitcase which contained the torso. This was a sports jacket, made of light green tweed with brown check. It was single-breasted with a green lining. A label on the inside pocket read, Guaranteed all wool, made in England. There was no maker's mark and the jacket was one of a type sold in multiple stores. I can find nothing to say that it belonged to the victim himself. In the pocket of the jacket was a matchbox. It was unusual because the brand were marketed in Israel. As well as the jacket and matchbox... There was a small towel bearing the laundry mark QL42, which would have been used to return the item to its owner after cleaning. Like the marking on the suitcase, the provenance of these items has never been proven, and they appear as if they may have also been red herrings. As the investigation continued, police set up roadblocks along the A137 near Tattingston. At the time, this was the main road between Ipswich and Manningtree, and carried heavy traffic from the Essex coastal towns of Harwich, Dovercourt and Clacton. The location where the suitcases had been discovered was 200 yards away, on a smaller lane which formed part of the Tattingston crossroads. About 150 people who had used the road on the nights of the 15th and 16th of January were stopped, including 24-year-old hairdresser Sheila Falser of Nelson Road, Ipswich, who told detectives of a man she saw walking about four miles from Tattingston the night before the body was found. She said, I was driving home on my own from Holbrook, and it was foggy. I was being followed by another car, which would not dip its headlights. As I turned right at Worsted to go into Ipswich, I saw a man carrying a suitcase by the side of the road. I remember thinking the man was probably a seaman hitchhiking back to his ship, He was about 30 feet away and wearing a long trench coat and a trilby hat. I couldn't see his face. The car that was behind me turned left towards Tattingston and stopped. It might have picked up the man. It was a few days after the discovery of the body, with police still no closer to identifying the young man, that they then made an unusual decision. As far as I can gather... This was an unprecedented step that today would probably never happen. Speaking to the BBC in 2011, local press photographer David Kindred said, I remember covering the story when police found the body. They had no idea who it was, so they came up with this idea to release the photograph of the head. 
It was the funeral directors who, shall we say, dressed the head. They brushed the hair and put a scarf around the neck, trying to make it look reasonably tidy. The police photographer had the job of taking the picture they issued to the press. If it's possible to do something like that discreetly, it was done as discreetly as it could be. To all intents and purposes, it looked just like a normal photograph. It wasn't presented to the readers as being the man's head. It just said, do you know this man? If you Google the case, this image is one of the first which comes up. I've looked at it way too many times since I started my research. It's eerie once you realise what you're seeing. There are two black and white photographs of the profile of his face. His eyes are subtly propped open and stare straight in front of him. His hair and eyebrows appear to have been brushed, and when you look closely, you understand that there is a cloth underneath and around his neck. And then the whole image becomes uncanny. It's strangely arresting, and the longer you look, the more uncomfortable it becomes. It was this image that was released to the newspapers, and it was this that would lead to the boy's identification. A couple of years ago, Chris Oliver, now in his mid-sixties, spoke to the East Anglian Daily Times. He's quoted as saying, I was waiting for a bus going up Muswell Hill. There was a clipping in the newspaper of this boy, and the head was just showing. A friend of mine said, That looks like your brother and he showed me the picture. I couldn't believe it. How do you feel when you're reading something like that, when his body had been found in a suitcase? Chris Oliver was right. The victim was his brother. Shortly after, he was formally identified by their father, George. His name was Bernard Oliver, and he was 17 and a half years old. Bernard Michael Oliver was born in 1950 to parents George and Sheila and had five siblings, four of them boys, Chris, Tony, Andrew and Philip, and a sister called Maureen. Bernard was the fourth child and at the time of his death he was living at home with his father and brothers in the aftermath of George and Sheila's separation a year previous. He shared a bedroom with Tony, the youngest in the family and Bernard is described as having learning difficulties, with a mental age of about 11. As a child, he'd reportedly attended a special needs school, and after leaving, found a job in a warehouse in Crouch End, London. There are unconfirmed reports that just before the warehouse job, he worked briefly with producer and songwriter Joe Meeks as a tape stacker in his studio. But I'll let Paul talk more about that. In terms of Bernard's personality... He's been described by his family as gentle and friendly, while neighbours spoke of him being a lone wolf who had few friends. One said he was content with his own company. He would just sit indoors and play records or go to the pictures on his own. Terry Morley, a friend of his who lived on the same street, said, All he talked about was working on a farm with animals. He was mad about them. He had a pet poodle called Pepe, which he took everywhere with him. 
The dog has been pining for Bernard ever since he went missing. It was the 6th of January 1967 when Bernard told his father he was either going to take his dog Pepe for a walk or perhaps go to the cinema, reportedly to see the 1956 film The Ten Commandments. It's not known for sure which of those Bernard chose to do that evening, because that was the day he disappeared, eight days before his murder, and ten days before Fred Berge discovered his dismembered body in the suitcases at Tattingston. The village of Tattingston in Suffolk sits just over five miles away from Ipswich. It's a tiny, windswept place. The 2011 census put the residents at 520 people, well, back in 1967, the population was only 20 more. It was built around the elegantly named Samford Hundred Incorporated House of Work, a fancy phrase for a workhouse where the inmates were employed to manufacture wool into yarn. In the 1930s, the building was converted to St Mary's Hospital, a long-stay establishment for the infirm, which closed its doors in 1991, and nowadays has been converted into residential properties. Today, if you've heard of Tattingston, it's probably because of Alton Water, a reservoir built in the 1970s and 80s which split the village in half and spans eight miles of the Suffolk countryside. Back in the 1960s, though, at the time when Bernard Oliver's body was found, the main thing of note in the village was a strange construction known as the Tattingston Wander. Built in 1790 by local squire Edward White, the wander is constructed on one side of normal cottages, but on the other it has the facade of a church. The squire believed that the local residents should always be able to see a church from their windows. Fred Drain, owner of Tattingston's only garage, told reporters in 1967 We've been on the telly once or twice when they've come down to have a look at the wander, but there is nothing else much here. Back then, there was one more notable building in Tattingston. This was Britain's smallest pub. Attached to the post office, the Waterloo House was built by Lord Cobbold of Cobbold Brewery as a place for villagers employed by his estate to drink after a hard day's work. Unfortunately, this plan was not ultimately successful, the village already boasted two other popular pubs, the Wheatsheaf and the White Horse, where his workers preferred to drink. The Wheatsheaf is actually located only 200 yards away from the location where Berner's body was discovered. It's on the other side of the Tattingston Crossroads, towards the village itself. An isolated-looking building, which nowadays looks pretty run-down, and boasts equally as run-down-looking chickens out front. Back in 1967... The owner of the wheat sheaf, Colin Owen, spoke to the press. He told them that on the night police believed the suitcases were left, he thought he'd seen a blue 1959 Coma van parked in Station Road. The van was parked just near where the body was found, and he's quoted as saying, It was about 5pm on Saturday night and was just getting dusk. The vehicle didn't have any lights on, I took a good look at it because I used to have a similar vehicle and wondered whether it was my old one. I did not see anybody by the vehicle, and when I went out a bit later that night, it had gone. I did not take the number of it, but I did notice that the front was a bit battered. As far as I can gather, nothing ever came of this information. 
Colin's wife Sylvia also spoke to reporters in the aftermath of the murder and told them, Nothing much goes on in the village at all. The murder seems to have put us on the map. At least we've done good business. But it's a horrible thing to have happened. Perhaps it might make the village really famous. It's difficult to tell from a written article, but it doesn't sound like she's awfully upset about what has happened. More happy for the business and the promise of fame. This sentiment wasn't entirely shared by other locals, with another resident telling the press, will be forgotten in a few days, and I won't be sorry. I like the place as it is. On two occasions, my research assistant Gemma and I have made the drive up to Tattingston. We parked near the wheat sheaf, next to the sad-looking chickens. Disturbingly, one of them was missing all of the feathers from a wing leaving only white spines and exposed flesh visible. I think it was this chicken which made me feel uncomfortable as we crossed the road and ducked into the field where the suitcases containing Bernard's body were discovered. It's still farmland and looks much the same now as it did in those photographs from 1967. The only difference is that the hedge behind which the suitcases were concealed has grown from waist height to towering high above our heads. We walked the hundred yards or so into the field and stopped in the right location. It's remote as anything. Once, the nearby village of Bentley possessed a train station, but it closed in 1966, leaving the area inaccessible except on foot or by car. As we stand there, I feel something of a bleakness descend upon me. This remote corner of Suffolk is a horrible place for a body to have been left. It occurs to me, too, that a field just off of a road with low hedges wouldn't have been the best place to leave the suitcases. At the time, residents of Tattingston believed the person who dumped the body wouldn't have known the area very well. If he had done, he'd have been aware that just a few hundred yards away was a disused dump, a much better location to dispose of something you didn't want found. As Gemma and I stood in the lonely field, with the weak winter sun and the breeze blowing across the flat landscape, I speculated about this, asking, did the killer want the body to be discovered? And if so, why? That's up to Paul to theorise in his episode. After Bernard's identity was discovered, the investigation into his death became more and more complex. Police set up a second murder headquarters in Muswell Hill, and while in part they now knew where their focus should be, it seemed as if it only served to make their inquiries wider and wider. There were certain items they felt were meaningful clues. The matchbook, the towel with the laundry mark, and of course the suitcases... Speaking at a press conference, Scotland Yard Superintendent Harry Tappin said of the letters on the case, I am sure that the key to our inquiries rests with the identification of the initials PVA found on one of the suitcases. 
I feel sure that when we know these and have answered other inquiries in London, we shall have a breakthrough in our investigations. From our research, it seems as if that breakthrough never arrived, though there were other avenues that the police were exploring. Their first job was to attempt to identify what had happened to Bernard between the time he went missing and when his body was found. These are the lost 10 days in the timeline. Harry Tappin was quoted as saying, We have had reports from people saying they saw Bernard between the time he disappeared and the day his body was found. More reports are coming in from people who saw the youth. I cannot at this stage say exactly where he was seen. We do know that police were attempting to establish if Bernard was working in Ipswich or Colchester after his disappearance. And Superintendent Tappin did tell the press that they were certain he died in Suffolk and was dismembered somewhere in the Ipswich area. What led them to this fact is still unclear. Bernard's father was certain that the boy had no links to the area, and so we can only assume that unnamed witnesses must have seen him around Ipswich in the days leading up to his death. It is here that we get into the most delicate aspect of the case, the physical evidence that police found on Bernard's body. Recapping from earlier, he had been manually strangled and had laceration wounds to the back of his head. When asked about these, Harry Tappin said, there were marks of violence on the body. These marks were wounds caused by part of the body coming into contact with an instrument. They were not bullet wounds, knife wounds, I would say. His body had also been cut into eight pieces with what was described as surgical precision and there was also the fact that Bernard had most definitely engaged in either consensual or forced intercourse in the days leading up to his murder. While we can't know for sure whether or not Bernard consented to the sex, and as a 17-year-old, perhaps consent is the wrong word, but we can look into the climate surrounding gay activity in 1960s Britain and how that might have affected the investigation into his death. In January of 1967, the laws surrounding homosexuality were on the cusp of change. In July of that year, a Sexual Offences Act was passed, which decriminalised private homosexual activity between two men over the age of 21 in England and Wales. The guidelines were narrow. If anyone else was in the house while two men had sex, it was illegal. If more than two men had sex together, it was illegal. If they were filmed or photographed having sex by another person, that too was illegal. It was also illegal to procure sex, which included men chatting up men or loitering in public places with homosexual intent, even if no sexual act occurred. There is research to suggest that the introduction of the Sexual Offences Act of 1967 actually led to more gay men being convicted than there had been before the act was passed. When researching this case, I found an article in the Ipswich Star from early February 1967, just five months or so before the lacklustre decriminalisation. Colin Bray writes for the Star under the byline Twilight World of Perverts. It reads, The Suffolk suitcase murder has led police to believe that a syndicate is operating in London among homosexuals. Because of recent murders involving homosexuals, 
a special Scotland Yard investigation bureau has been set up in Kensington to probe the twilight world of scores of people who might be involved in perverted practices. Inquiries in Ipswich alone had revealed indications that homosexual activities are more predominant than was originally realised. Detectives working with underworld contacts in London's West End are sure that big business has moved in among sexual perverts. The Tattingston murder could well spark off a countrywide inquiry into the possibility of a syndicate working from London who rent out young boys for perverted practices. There's an obvious point to address here. It's how shocking, or perhaps sadly not shocking it is, that the writer of this article seems to be confusing gay men with paedophiles. There's a quote from another report which states, Police are checking on scores of known homosexuals in London and Ipswich who may be able to shed some light on the movement of Bernard Oliver. This is unfortunate because it means that, like Colin Bray of the Ipswich Star, police too seem to have made a very basic mistake. I can only imagine how little information they must have got from those men, who exactly would count as a known homosexual worthy of police interview. If the common belief was that all gay men were perverts, then the assumption would almost definitely be that all gay men were capable of sex with a 17-year-old boy with a mental age of 11. I'm not saying for sure that this gross misunderstanding of sexual preference hindered the police investigation, but I can say that their lines of inquiry would take years to lead to anyone resembling suspects, and that when it did, it was in part because these men were doctors with the knowledge needed to surgically dismember a body, and in part it's because these men were known paedophiles with a preference for young boys. I'm not going into detail here of suspects, Paul's covering that over on his episode. But I think it's important to understand how the prejudices of the police force in 1960s England might have hindered their inquiries into the murder. Yes, it is obvious that what happened to Bernard was in the first instance sexually motivated. But prejudice can blink a reason. And I'm not sure that isn't what's happened here. I found one more quote on the subject. It's very simple. Detectives say... They are going to interview every gay man in London. I can only hope they had fun filing the useless paperwork. to end this episode with a couple of quotes from Bernard's brothers Tony and Chris. It was only August of 2018 when Chris told Sky News, really none of us spoke to each other about it because we were so hurt. It was difficult to bring the subject up and to talk about it. Tony and me were the only two that really spoke about it and Tony more so than me because he had a fantastic memory about things. It just upset me to hear a lot of things he could remember about Bernard. I can't turn around to you and say, it's life, because it's not. It's not what you expect to happen. It's absolutely devastating. And Tony, talking to the BBC in 2011, said, the way his body was dissected in such a clinical way 
was spine-chilling. And then to see his head in a newspaper. It's hard to come to terms with. I can't bury it. I don't think I ever go a week without thinking about Bernard. When his body was found, I was just hollow. I just kept asking myself why. What was the motive? Why Tattingston? Suffolk felt a million miles away in those days. It was terrible for my parents to go to their graves without knowing what happened to Bernard. I still believe somebody who knows what happened to Bernard is still alive. I've never given up hope. Before I finish, I'd like to say thank you to Paul for his research and our long and involved chats on the subject of Bernard's case. I think for both of us, this has been a hard one to work through. For me, parts of the investigation have left me angry and other parts have left me sad. It's the same whenever I research these unsolved murders, but especially when it appears as if prejudice has hindered an investigation. Reading interviews with Bernard's brothers, I can see just how devastating the event was. And while it has been 52 years last month, perhaps Tony Oliver is right. Perhaps someone alive does know something. Perhaps there is still a little hope. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then please head over to the True Crime Enthusiast for part two. And if you want more information and to have a look at some of the news articles for yourself, then you can find them on my website at www.theoutlinespodcast.com. If you haven't already, then please take a minute to review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to Outlines. And if you want to support my research and have anything from a couple of quid a month free, then make sure you check out the show's Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash the outlines podcast my thanks to Kirsty phillips my newest patron and to all of you who listen to the show this episode of outlines was researched written and produced by jess carter with additional research by paul sutherland and Gemma frost the music was composed by elias hardy <laughs>